All right, we got any coffee drinkers out there? Coffee, okay, good. The first service, yeah, I don't know that we had any coffee drinkers. So, um, uh, anybody Starbucks fans? All right, we got a few. Uh, if you're going to get cold brew, Starbucks is the place to go. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts coffee lovers? Yes, all right, good. I'm a New Englander, so uh, that was me. How about Folgers? Anybody, like, you're that desperate? Like, you fold? Uh, decaf? Anybody here drink decaf? Uh, it's funny, those of us that all have like white in our hair and beard, we're like, yeah, that's us. Um, so I've recently started drinking decaf. I have hand tremors, um, and now that I've cut caffeine out, it's reduced it some. I've sat in meetings before with people where like, I'm like, they think I'm nervous or like I'm, you know, like in withdrawal or something like that, and I'm like, no, 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 I just, uh, like, it's coffee. So, uh, but anyways, I was talking to Mike, uh, assessment, Mike, our worship pastor, he drinks coffee from Speedway. Right, if, that, if, those, if that's the option, like I'm never drinking coffee again, ever. Um, but uh, we were talking about coffee beans. He was just in Guatemala. And uh, if you planted a coffee tree uh, in hopes of producing beans, if you planted that today, it would be anywhere between two and a half to four years before you'd actually see the production of the beans. Apple trees are two to five years. So you, 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 you plant it today, but you don't reap the harvest for, for years down the line. But, but here's, what you, here's what you know about a, a, a coffee tree or an apple tree or whatever. The moment you plant it, it starts to produce something. It may not necessarily be visible, and it may not be, uh, and it may not be outward, but it's starting the process. There's something that is taking place beneath the surface. You know, the Bible uses this analogy to describe our lives, that, that we are like trees. Numerous times throughout the Bible, it says we're like trees. And if you're a little bit insulted by that, it also describes us as sheep. So I'd rather be described as a tree than a sheep. So, uh, but, but we're described as trees, that, that what we are producing, like our behavior, what's coming out of our lives, is ultimately what is being produced within us. So, so if you think about it this way, we're not bodies with souls, we're souls with bodies. There's things that are happening at a heart level that eventually is going to manifest itself in, in, in our behavior. And Jesus talks a lot about that throughout, throughout the Gospels. In the passage we're in this morning, uh, we're going to get there in, in, a, in a couple of minutes, but that's one of the things that Jesus talks about is that good trees produce good fruit from the treasury of a good heart. Uh, but before we get there, I want to I back up, and we've been walking through the book of Matthew, verse by verse. We're in Matthew 12. Matthew, the end of Matthew 12 is actually the, the, the there's kind of a, a dividing line between the first and the second half of the book of Matthew. The end of Matthew 12 is where that, that dividing line is. And in Matthew 11 and 12, as we've been in this, these chapters for the last several weeks, we've seen that Jesus has offered the, the kingdom to the nation of Israel. The kingdom is the redemptive reign of Christ. He's offered them this kingdom, but they've rejected it. And so we've seen as that's played out with the crowds, we've seen it in the last few weeks as it's played out in the relationship and the, the, the conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And so the kingdom has been offered, they're rejecting it, and now the religious leaders last week were saying, you're of the devil, and they were conspiring to kill Jesus. And so the, to kind of put a bow on that conversation in verse 30, uh, continuing from where we left off last week, verse 30, it says, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Jesus is talking about these religious leaders, and he's calling them out, saying, if you are against me, then you are against the kingdom. 
You know, the, the Pharisees thought that what they were doing was noble, upholding the, the word of God, up, upholding the law of Moses. And Jesus says, what you think you're doing, what you think you're working for, is actually something you're working in complete opposition of. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not working with me, then you're working in opposition to me. And then in verse 31, he says, so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. It's kind of a really scary thing to think about. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. Now, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I used to hear people talk about the unpardonable sin. Anyone ever hear that? Like, man, you, and I, don't, I didn't know what it was. I'm like, I guess I don't want to do that. Like, you know, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven. And it's kind of a scary thought. It's kind of a, uh, like, a, like a, a creates a, a lot of inner tension. And I remember times in my life going, I want to figure out what that is. And this is where context is really important. When you read scripture, context is always critical. Because if you don't get the context, this is where we will pick verses out that go, oh, that fits, that fits this conflict I'm having with this individual. That, that fits the, the political landscape of our country. And so we'll pick a verse and build an entire case uh, for what we believe or what we want based off of one verse. But without the context, a lot of times you can get misguided. And this is a perfect example of that. We've heard people talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is never going to be forgiven, this unpardonable sin. But what context tells us about this is that this is not a personal conversation. This is a national conversation. Jesus, over the last couple of chapters, Jesus is addressing the nation of Israel. The rejection of the nation of Israel was not a personal rejection. It was a national rejection. And so this is a conversation Jesus is having at, at a national level. It's kind of like when, uh, if you played sports and your team uh, had to, you know, you had a bad practice and the team had to run extra you know, suicides or extra laps around the field or something like that. And the whole time you're running, you're like cussing the coach in your mind, going like, I worked really hard. I did everything I was supposed to do. But the, the team collectively, uh, the, the weakest person on the team, like the team is no stronger than its weakest link. And so the whole team is having to do this. But you go, well, man, we're not all guilty of it, but we're all experiencing the consequence of it. And so Jesus is making a national, uh, a national statement that tells us that there's not a sin that you can commit that can't be forgiven, and there's not a sin someone else can commit that can't be forgiven. And we know that by simply reading the rest of the New Testament. Like, if you think about it, if it was a, if it was a personal indictment against anyone that was a part of the nation of Israel, half of our New Testament we wouldn't even have because Paul was a Jew who would have been guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus' own half-brothers, James and Jude, uh, would have been a part of that as well, and not to mention the 3,000 Jews that, uh, that were saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So we know that this is not individual, it's not personal, it's, it's national. And then it goes on in verse 33, which verse 33 to 35 is where I want to focus our time this morning. Uh, he says, a tree is identified by its fruit. So Jesus is saying to them, what is my life produced? When you look at my life, what do you see? I've checked off the boxes of prophecy. I've fulfilled all the prophecy, all the Old Testament prophets. He says, I've, I've checked the boxes of things like the messianic miracles. We've talked about that over the course of the last uh, several months in Matthew 8 and 9, and then again last week, as Jesus did things that only the Messiah could do, healings that only the Messiah could do, healings that had never been done before. 
And so he's checking all of the boxes, and he says, he says, a tree is identified by its fruit. Look at, look at my life. What does my life tell you? What I've produced in my life tells you that I'm the Messiah. And then he says, but a, a, he says, if a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you, again, he's talking to the religious leaders, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. The Pharisees were experts at behavior modification at the expense of, of heart transformation. So, so they, they were focused on how they behaved. They weren't focused on what was taking place in their heart. And Jesus says, ultimately, what's in your heart is going to come out in your behavior. For the Pharisees, it was things that even they would have elevated, but things like, like their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, their pride that was on display. Jesus is saying, man, that, that, that's, that flows from the heart. That's, that's come, from, come from within. And then in verse 35, he says, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. Jesus says here and in other places that what originates in our heart eventually is going to come out in our behavior and the words that we speak. Have you ever done something and thought, oh man, I can't believe I did that. I don't know where that came from. It was so out of character. I'll tell you where that came from. That came from our heart. Like, like, like you'll, you'll have a, a friend and all of a sudden you find that one of, the, one of your friends is having an affair and you're like, I can't believe that. I've never thought that that would have happened with them. And, and, and when you understand the heart, no physical affair started simply as a physical affair. It started in our heart. That ultimately what's in our heart, what we are allowing into our, the innermost parts of our being, what we are fostering in our lives eventually is going to come out in our, our actions and in our behavior. And the Bible has a lot to say about the heart, and ultimately, the heart is that the heart is what produces action. And that's why Jesus was constantly talking about the heart. Like, what's going on within us is, is of utmost importance. In fact, to Jesus today, what's going on in your heart is more important than your behavior. What's happening in here is more important than what is, than what is visible and what is seen. Because Jesus knows that you can change your behavior without changing your heart, but you can't change your heart without it changing your behavior. We see this lived out all the time. When, when, when I was uh, back in, in my middle school days specifically, I did homework every day. And I didn't do homework because I had a good heart. I did homework because my dad would kill me if I didn't. Right, so, so it never had anything to do with, with, with my heart. My behavior changed because I valued living. I valued being able to, to play outside with my friends. That was the only motivation. But then when I got into college and I knew that I was wanting to get a good ministry position after seminary, all of a sudden I was in Virginia and my dad is in Rhode Island and he wasn't coming down every weekend to, to check my progress. In fact, he never called to ask me how my, how my grades were or to ask me if I was doing my homework. My heart changed. I wanted something, my heart changed, and then eventually when my heart changed, the behavior followed. And so Jesus is after our hearts. He's looking to transform and to reshape and to reshape our hearts. And he says that trees produce after their kind. So a good tree is going to produce good fruit. A bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. Trees produce after their kind. We see that in, in, in our lives today, in our, in our world around us today. Like apple trees produce what? Apples. Very good. Grape vines produce grapes. Cornfields produce 
I would have said whiskey, but sure, corn. Um, we'll, we'll go with, uh, with what you want. But, but we're no different. Like our actions are a reflection, are an overflow of what is taking place within our hearts. And so whatever it is that, that you and I carried in here with us this morning, whatever it is that we're struggling with today, for many, for many of us, we, we go through these seasons or maybe you're walking through it right now where there's something going on in your life and you just feel so overwhelmed and defeated. You're, you're constantly giving into something and going, man, I just don't know why I continue to do this. I don't know why I continue to produce this type of action. And that's where we've got to address the heart. Because for most of us, we don't address the heart. We address the behavior. Why? Because the behavior is what's seen. And about five years ago, uh, I want to show you guys something that Jen and I learned about five years ago. Uh, I'm going to channel my inner professor today. Uh, I need my glasses and my sport coat. Um, but, um, but so we, I was a part of a, a learning cohort of pastors, and we met three different places around the country, and one of them was in Seattle, Washington, which Seattle is one of my all-time favorite cities. And so when I knew I was going to Seattle, I was like, all right, I got to figure out how to take Jen with me. So she got to be uh, a part of this, but it was with a group called the, the Soma Churches, which are in Tacoma, which is just south of, uh, just south of Seattle. But, uh, but, but we walked through something, and for me, some, some context for me that maybe you'll connect with, I grew up in a, a church background where uh, you, you would call it a legalistic background where it was all about behavior. Like you checked the boxes of all the things you did and all the things you didn't do. And the way you validated or the way you evaluated whether or not you were spiritual was based on the things you did and the things you didn't do. And if you did all the right things and avoided all the bad things, then you must be spiritual. And so because of that, I developed this broken mentality of how to even, how to even view behavior. So, so, so think, about it, think about it this way. We are, we, our actions are produced at the heart level. What's in our heart eventually is going to come out in our actions. And so we've got to learn to what, what I would call deconstruct, move, rather than just simply go. Because so, here's, here's what happens. So um, let's say you, you struggle, you're, you're giving into lust. And so it's, it's producing this fruit in your life. And, and it happens, and you're like, man, I, I wish I didn't do that. I, I want to stop doing that. Uh, or, or maybe it's um, like you struggle with a need for control. And so you, you, you have this mentality that God's got a plan and he's in control, but his plan isn't quite as good as your plan. And then you're sitting in meetings at work and, uh, and, and your boss is talking and you're in there and, and you say something. I've been, I've been there before where I say something and I'm like, that was not productive. I shouldn't have said that. But sometimes I just can't help it because I know I'm in a meeting where I'm the only one with a good idea. And so if you struggle with a need for control, like, that comes out. Everybody's idea is terrible except yours, and you say things. And then you leave the meeting, and you go, man, I wish I wasn't like that. Like, I wish I could, I wish I could support what other people are doing. Uh, I wish I could be more, uh, more encouraging. And so what we tend to do is, the way, the way we've been taught, is what we do with this stuff is we go, well, just stop doing it. So just stop giving into lust. Just stop speaking up in meetings, and so then you're sitting in a meeting, and you've been there if you're like this, and you're literally just white-knuckling. It's like, it's like in the movie Anger Management. You know, you're just saying, goose fraba, goose fraba, because you just want to completely explode because everybody's idea is still dumb. Nothing's changed at the heart level, but we're just simply trying to control, <clears throat> simply, we're just simply trying to control the behavior. Just stop doing it. 
But here's the reality about trees, and if, if the comparison and the analogy about trees is true about us, then you could take all of the fruit off a tree. If you have an apple tree in your yard, and you picked all of the apples off of that today, I could come by your house tomorrow, and I may not know that that's an apple tree, but what's going to happen next summer? It's going to produce apples, because trees produce <clears throat> after their kind. And so we've got to learn to move from simply trying to eliminate behavior and getting down to the point where we address what we're believing, because ultimately it's our belief that shapes our behavior. We learned that when we did the Be to Live series in the book of Ephesians. If you remember that, the first three chapters, we spent like three months in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul never tells us to do anything in the first three chapters. He tells us to believe and to know and to cling to some things that are true. To, to, he gives us some truth. So we've got to learn to deconstruct down to the down to the heart level, because ultimately it's from the heart that our behavior is, uh, is, is produced. And so I want, to show, I want to walk through this with you guys. We've got four questions up here. <clears throat> uh, we introduced these a while ago, but these are four questions that will lead you to transformation. So th this can apply to, uh, to, to anything. Like let's say your, your marriage is struggling. Start to dig into these questions from the perspective of a, of a marriage that's struggling. Um, as you're reading through the Bible, like rather than just reading a chapter and walking away and like, yeah, I'm glad I did that. I put my check in the box. I must be spiritual because I read the Bible today. Learn to ask some questions, like start to dig in. Okay, in this passage, who is God? What has he done? Who am I? How do I live? So these are questions that will lead us to, to transformation. And so I want to use these questions this morning, but for the, for, the, for the first half of this, as we deconstruct, we're actually going to work through these questions backwards. Because ultimately, how I live is already happening. The, 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 the fruit is, is already there. And let's just take for the, for the sake of an example, for you right now, whatever it is that you're, that you're wrestling with, that you're struggling with, put yourself in, this, in, in, this, uh, in these questions, ask these questions of yourself. But just to give us an example to go with, <clears throat> let's, just take, uh, let's just take covetousness for an as an example. Um, something as uh, Americans, we, we are constantly faced with. Many of us struggle with it. It's a, it's a strong desire for something you don't have. It's the, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. You think about all of the other commandments, don't steal, don't commit adultery. All of those stem from coveting. You want something that isn't yours, and so, uh, and so you take it. And, and God said, no, 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 like, go all the way back to the heart level. Don't, don't covet. Like, like address it at that level. So covetousness comes out for, for us in a lot of different ways. It's producing fruit. You know, it's, it's like it's materialism. So the average American home has 300,000 items. Like, what, what are we doing with 300,000 items? Look at, uh, look at storage units. Storage units are popping up everywhere. Houses are bigger than they've ever been, and there are more storage units than we've ever had. The, fam the number of people in the average family has gone down, and houses are getting bigger. We always want bigger. We always want better. We're always looking for faster. We're looking for something new. Um, I mean, and listen, I, I'm guilty of it. The internet's never been faster than it is right now, and I'm always researching to go, when are they going to come up with a faster way uh, to, to, uh, to, to move us along the, uh, the internet, right? Like, I, like I want it to be faster than it is. It's, it's never good enough. And so it's, it's producing things. Covetousness is producing things in our life that we look at and go, and I wish, it, I wish I wasn't so materialistic. You know, I wish I didn't have this insatiable desire for more. Other things about covetousness is it starts to bleed out into an envy, where now it becomes personal. Now all of a sudden, 
you have something that I want, like, like your neighbor, your neighbor gets a new car and you're like, he doesn't work as hard as I do. He doesn't deserve that. And so you start to feel this, this sense of, of, of envy and then the way that starts to, to manifest itself in our lives is now all of a sudden we begin to take joy over, uh, over the struggle of others. Like there are people who maybe you've been with people like this, maybe you are this type of person and you, and you, you recognize that you wrestle with it where it's like you always seem to be happiest when everybody else around you is sad. And so this, this starts to, to come out in, in envy in the way, we, the way we treat each other. About poor financial decisions, like it, it is producing fruit. And so we go, man, I just want to stop making poor financial decisions, but you've got to address what you're believing that's causing that to happen there anyway. Because if you just stop making poor financial decisions, it's going to be fine until Apple introduces a new Apple, like the new iPhone in September, and we're all going to get it, right? So we've got to address it down to the, down to the, uh, the, the heart level. And that's what working through these questions will do. Working through these questions help us move through confession. Confession is to see our sin or our behavior as God sees it. And when you and I see our sin the way God sees it, we have a much different perspective than we do simply trying to see it through, through, through our own lens, through our own eyes. So it's learning to see our sin as God sees it. So how am I living? Well, that's, what's, that's the fruit that's being produced, good or bad. And the next question you ask is, okay, well, then based on how I'm living, what does that say about what I'm believing about who I am? <clears throat> based on what we're talking about, I'm, I'm consumed. I'm consumed with wanting more. I'm in need of something better than I currently have. I'm, I'm incomplete. And then working backwards through the questions, and this is where you've got to be honest. Like, this is where we have to really learn to, to confess the lies that we're believing. Because if we don't do this with an honest, open heart, we're just going to give the Bible answers. We know what we're supposed to say. That's, that's great. You know what you're supposed to say, but that's not what you're believing, right? What we're believing is ultimately shaping the, the behavior. So what has is, what is God done? And this is where we got to say some hard things out loud that we know, man, I'm ashamed that I believe this, but the reality is I believe when I'm consumed with covetousness, I believe that God is not enough. And you say, well, no, 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 there, there are plenty of verses in the Bible that tell us that God's enough. That's true. But if I truly believe that, I wouldn't be producing this. So I'm believing lies. I'm believing that he's not enough. I'm believing that he's unfazed by what I want and what I think I deserve. And for some of us, if, if we're honest about it, when you say, what has God done? The answer for, for us at times is nothing. Where we go, God is capable of doing all of these things. He owns everything He's sovereign, he's all-powerful, and yet I want something and he doesn't give it to me. So for some of us, our perspective of God, the lie that we're believing, is that God's simply done nothing. He hasn't done anything bad, but he hasn't done anything good. And so then you ask the question then from there, what has God done? Well, then what does that tell me about what I'm believing about who God is? It tells me that I'm believing that God is good, but he's not good enough. He's not enough for me. <clears throat> Maybe this morning you struggle because your belief about God is you're just in a place you just believe he's unloving. Like you're wrestling with the tension of what you know is true, but like within you, right now you're going, I just don't believe that he's loving. Or maybe he's incapable of, of meeting my needs. 
This is where we are doing the work of deconstructing because ultimately it's the belief that's shaping our behavior. If you're driving down the road tonight on 42 and someone flashes their headlights at you, you're going to slow down. Why? Because you believe you didn't see the cop, but you believe the cops are the heads. So you're going to slow down. And so this is deconstructing down to the, to the root level. That's what confession does. I see my sin as God sees my sin. Man, take some time to do the work of what David talked about in the Psalms. And he said, search me and know my heart. And sit down and, and just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, show me the brokenness that is existing in my life, that, that what is in my heart that eventually is going to come out in my behavior. Dig down and figure out what's happening at the root level about what we're believing that's justifying, that's ultimately justifying the fruit that we are producing. And so we've got to move from, from the fruit to the root and then confession Confession always leads us to repentance. Man, listen, when you and I see our sin as God sees our sin, we have a much different perspective of it, and it, is, it will cause us to change our minds. That's what repentance means. It's to, it's to change our mind. It's not necessarily to change your actions, it's to change your mind. You change your mind, eventually your, your, your action, your behavior is going, to, is going to, to change as well. So it's confession that, that leads us to repentance, and then repentance will lead us to a place of of surrender. Surrender is where I choose every day when I wake up, where I choose who is going to rule the day. Is it going to be me or is it going to be King Jesus? Am I going to choose to, to, to seek my own satisfaction and pleasure or, I'm going to, or am I going to surrender control of all of my life to him to bring honor and glory to him? I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus was saying when he said to the crowds that were, follow, that were wanting to follow him, he said, hey, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to take up your cross, and you've got to follow me. He says it starts by denying self. Like, I'm never going to be whatever Jesus wants me to be until I first learn to deny myself because I've got these two natures at war within me. Every, every one of us in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are two natures right now fighting for control of your life. The, Bible, the book of Galatians talks about this. It literally, it's, it's the, the, the cartoon uh, where you've got the, the angel on the one shoulder and the demon on the other shoulder. That is playing itself out in our lives every single day as we have choices to make. Am I going to choose to do what makes me happy or am I going to choose to do what's going to honor and glorify him? And, it, and it's this tension that we, that we have to wrestle with. And surrender is where I say, is where I say like, it doesn't matter uh, it doesn't matter what I, what I think I want here. It ultimately matters what's, what I'm allowing to take root in my life that ultimately is going to produce something that is going to bring honor and is going to bring glory to him. And as we do this work of deconstructing, confession, which leads to repentance, repentance, which will drive us to this, this place of surrender, now we then begin, the Holy Spirit begins the, the process of reconstructing of moving up. So now we move through these questions backwards, addressing the same thing. Well, who is God? Not what am I believing, but truly who is God? Well, he's my faithful provider. He's our source. The book of Genesis, God appeared to Abraham, I think it's Genesis 15, and he says to Abraham, I will be your shield and I will be your, your reward. 
So God says, I will protect you, and I will be your, your reward. I will be what brings, you, what brings you pleasure. And to Abraham, it was this, this tension of, do I want to fight to protect myself? Or do I want to surrender and allow him to protect me? Rather than me seeking my own reward, do I want to surrender and let him be the reward? Like, he's our, he's our source. He's our protector. He's our reward. He's our faithful provider. He's enough. In fact, he's not just enough. He's more than enough. And we've got to preach that truth to ourselves down here at the heart level that when we're confronted with things that we know are not in step with the gospel, that we confront it with the truth that we know. Man, I preach the truth of who he is over the doubt that I feel. Who is God and then what has he done? We sent Jesus to come into this world to live, to die, to be buried, and to rise again, to pay for the sin that is being produced in my life, to reconcile me back to God. He's given me everything I need. And I'm reminded of this in the North American culture. And I have to, to tell myself this at times. The reality is if right now the, the life I live, the majority of Americans live, if we don't have it, we really don't need it. And, and, and to realize and to recognize that God is, is our provider. He's given us everything that we need. So when I know who God is and I know what God has done, I now begin to understand who I am. I'm a dearly loved child of God. I'm forgiven, I'm chosen, I'm redeemed. I'm complete. That all of the things that I'm, <clears throat> that I'm chasing, all the things this world has to offer me that I think I need, that I'm convincing myself will bring me happiness and satisfaction, that I don't need any of that because in him I'm complete. And for so many of us, we struggle because we set things up to exist in a capacity that only God can exist. We do it with stuff. Man, if I just get that, that house, I'm going to be happy. And having houses, having stuff, having money is not the problem. I've said this before. It's not, having stuff is not the problem. It's when stuff has you. And when we set it up to exist in a capacity that only God can exist, when we idolize it, some of you in your relationships, this is, this, is, this is playing itself out. Some of us as husbands, we set our wives up to exist in a capacity that only God can exist, and we constantly find ourselves disappointed. And you think about it, yes, we're going to be disappointed when we expect her to exist in a way that only God can exist. Like, I am complete in him. I am found in him. And then now the question becomes, okay, now... How do I live? What do I begin to produce? This is the result of addressing what's happening at the root level. You address what's happening at the root level, it's going to, over time, eventually change the behavior. And this, and this works with anything. I mean, it, it could be what we're, what we're talking, the example we used, it could be the desire for control, it could be, uh, it could be a struggle with lust, it could be a struggle with bitterness, it could be a struggle with pride, whatever it is. But this begins to reshape and redirect and ultimately change what our lives are producing. And as we submit to this process, we allow the Holy Spirit to slowly, over time, reconstruct us. And, and, this, and this is a process. Listen, this is gradual. Transformation 
is slow. The Holy Spirit works in our lives from the inside out, which is opposite of what we want and what we look for. We want instant results, don't we? I mean, who, you, you know, you go on a diet and it's like, yeah, you lose a pound a week or some commercial comes on and it's like lose 20 pounds in three days. Like that's the one we're going to choose. <laughs> whether it's healthy or not, whether it works, that's the, that's the one we're going to choose. We want instant results. And when we don't see instant results, we assume it's not working or we start to look somewhere else. But transformation takes time. You plant an apple tree today, you're not going to see apples for possibly as, maybe as long as five years from now. You've got to be willing to do the work to invest the time. And whenever you see behavior or belief patterns in your life that you don't like, you've got to deconstruct them. You've got to, like Corinthians talks about, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. And eventually, as we submit to this process, we start to produce something different in our life. We start to produce, as Galatians 5 talks about, in verse 22, Paul says, uh, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Have you ever stopped to think about that last statement, there's no law against these things? Have you ever been in a culture where it's like, oh, you know, uh, no joy. We're outlawing joy. Peace, we, you can have anything you want here, but you cannot have peace. There's no law against this stuff. This, this, this is the betterment of society. This is the betterment of our lives. This is a part of living the life that Jesus said when he said, I came to give you life, but not just a life. I came to give you abundant life. Like the best life you could have. I came to give you that. And we begin to produce this slowly over time. That now, instead of, instead of envy, eventually, I start to just have joy. Man, I don't, like I can't explain it. I don't have everything that I used to have, but somehow in the middle of that, I just have joy. Rather than being obsessed with all of the things that are coming out, I just... I start to produce peace. And, and, this, and this, is, this is the process that happens over time as we submit to the process of the deconstruction of our old ways, our old patterns, the old self, and then now we surrender to the spirit of Jesus that is, that is living within us. And you know, every one of us in here has to accept that our lives are producing something. And if you don't like what your life is producing, then you've got to work from behavior back to the heart. And this morning, if you're struggling, I know for some of us, this, there, there, there's this tension that we feel because you, maybe you're here and you go, man, I'm just ensnared by something. And you say, I hear what you're saying. I want it, but I just can't seem to be free. This, I just can't seem to get away from this. And I'm telling you that this process of surrender will, will eventually produce change. It won't produce change overnight, but it will eventually produce change. And I want to remind you of what it says in Galatians 5. Right after the, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Our passions 
and desires of the sinful nature have been nailed to the cross and crucified with him there. Two things. Number one, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel over every area of your life. The sin that seems to have you bound, the doubt you feel, the fear you're experiencing, you preach the gospel over that every single day, reminding yourself that those old passions and desires have past tense been crucified. I grew up in a, in a church background where the gospel was for lost people. Man, Easter was all about trying to get people who were lost to pray a prayer. And so you pray this prayer and that becomes your golden ticket that in eternity you're gonna get through the pearly gates because you prayed that prayer. And so the gospel became this thing that you did before you were a follower of Jesus and then now became this part of getting you into eternity. I mean, what I've learned in the last 10 years is the gospel was for me then, but the gospel is for me now. The gospel didn't just save me, the gospel is sustaining me and it's changing me every single day. Preach the gospel over yourself every day. And then what Paul said is follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. We don't get to pick and choose which parts we surrender. We surrender it all. Our problem isn't behavioral, our problem is at a heart level. And the solution isn't behavioral, it's learning to surrender control of our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, a good tree produces good fruit from the treasury of a good heart. The way I would say it today for us is a good tree produces good fruit from the treasury of a surrendered heart. Let's pray. Father, you are active, you are present, you're always working and speaking. I'm so thankful for the journey that I've been on and really the, a lot of the last 10 years of just discovering the new things about the, literally the unsearchable riches of the gospel. Like, and the more we dig, the more we discover and the more we realize there's so much more. So right now I pray over our lives, God, that we would be willing to do that work, that difficult work of deconstructing. Rather than just trying to stop doing things that we know aren't glorifying you, but, but begin to identify why, what we're believing that's causing us to do that. And then cling to the truth of who you are and from the truth of who you are. It just reshapes everything in our lives. Jesus, you are the king. You are worthy of our surrender. You are worthy of all honor and all glory. You are victorious and we share in your victory. Holy Spirit, do the work showing us our brokenness and showing us what it looks like to become more like Jesus. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray it. Amen.